You're listening to the Recoveredish Podcast. I'm your host, licensed therapist, Amanda E. White. I'm so excited to have Jake Ernst here. You may know him on Instagram. Jake is a therapist. How are you? I am doing so well, Amanda. It's so good to see you. I feel like the last time last time we talked, we were talking about a lot of other different things. So I'm happy to chat about this today. Yeah. So today we are going to get into something you and I are both really passionate about, which is social media, disinformation, and you have a really specific specialty in working with teens and adolescents. Do you want to just give us some background about you and how you came to specialize in this? Yeah. So I'm I'm a social worker. Um, and as social workers, we really love to work in the environment uh, with the people that we're working with. And so I have a school social work background. I used to work um, in community mental health and in schools. And then I started my private practice, my group practice, alongside a lot of the work that I've been doing. And uh, I've noticed just by being where kids are, uh, that there are a lot of challenges that they face. And I think that one of the things, the conversations rather that I feel like I can't escape is conversations about what it is like growing up online, what it is mm-hmm. like to be a teenager on social media, and what it is like to connect with people on, on the internet. It's just pervasive. And so I can't escape it. And so that's what sort of brings me to this this place. But then I also connect to it personally. Um, myself, I feel like I'm noticing in myself a lot of the changes that kids are reporting to me too. So I find that to be quite fascinating, that it's not just generational, it's uh, across the board. I think we're about the same age. We're like millennials. So we grew up in this weird time where we have a distinct memory of internet, pre-internet, social media, which was a different change. How was it for us as teens or adolescents compared to now? I I call that the before times. (laughs) In, in in the before times, before the internet was here, uh, I think that we were more likely to have play-based childhoods. And now kids today have a phone-based childhood, one that is devoid of freedom, play, spontaneity, and opportunities to embrace challenges that come our way, opportunities for growth uh, that aren't centered around their experience of online. And so I would say most fundamentally, the social lives of teenagers has really shifted towards what are the norms of internet culture and the internet and social media rather than the norms of what is happening in our community or in our schools or in our families. And so we're, we're much we're seeing a lot of reorientation of norms. And I think that, unfortunately, internet norms are not really conducive to well-being. That is so interesting to think about in that way. So correct me if I'm wrong, but part of what you're saying is that it used to be, right, if you were in a certain group of people or you had a certain experience, there were norms at your high school or your camp or your family, and those were separate and could be created, where now, because our lives and their lives are so interconnected with social media, you can't escape it and it infiltrates and prevents people from creating maybe healthy norms in their groups of people. Yeah, that's exactly how I see it too. And Um, this is the first generation to go through puberty with a smartphone in their hand. This is the first generation, uh, to, uh, essentially like expose themselves to really violent, big, harmful, big, huge ideas, right? So there's a bit of a loss of innocence, um, that comes along with that too. And it reshifts developmental periods. And the way that I, I sort of see it is it brings us all back to middle school 
that is where the social brain is on fire. And even as adults, mm. our experience is actually more similar developmentally to middle school than it is to adulthood. And so it creates a scenario right where we're trapped in what it was like to feel in middle school, where socially we're really disconnected, but desperate and really wanting to connect with people, but also excluded, but also included and really trying to figure out like what is the balance there. So I think the experience that we feel when we're back online is that more similar to middle school transitioning to high school rather than emotional adulthood. Wow. That is, my brain is like buzzing a little bit (laughs) by you saying that. I mean, and to your earlier point, this is the most globally similar generation that we've ever seen in the world. And a lot of that has to do with the globalization effects of being online, right? And Mm -hmm. living chronically online at that. Mm -hmm. And I think that there are some, there's a rewiring that happens, right? One where kids simultaneously don't want to grow up, but are more mature than they need to be where they are. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is a niche topic, but one thing I talked to one of my friends who has, um, a child in middle school, and I'm sure you've seen the memes and stuff like that, right? Is there's this whole generation now that's really obsessed with adult seeming things like a Stanley water cup, right? Like that was like the top Christmas yes. gift. Or um, I think there were like the Lululemon belt bag, like these these mom things almost, or like 30-year-old things, which is is so odd. And I think, yeah, like influencer culture, TikTok. Are you seeing any other examples? of that that you could tell us about? I'm seeing a lot of recycled trends happening, right? So there's a sort of nostalgic uh, way that I I see a lot of teenagers sort of finding themselves. These are things like even Ugg boots or even like the the Lululemon like flare pants. Yes. I can't remember what they're calling them now, but they're not calling them yoga pants. They're calling them like bell buttons. Oh, they're they're like wide leggings, I think. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and so there's sort of like a reinvention and a recycling of old ways of doing things or old trends, um, yeah. like things like puka shell necklaces or, right. you know, frosted tips or, you know, fashion, I think, is a really important access mm-hmm. point for kids to find out who they are. And I think it always has been. Uh, and I think across the board, yeah, like you're sort of referencing, they're, they, they're finding ways to make it theirs. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, capturing some of the, the old ways of doing things. And so I'm finding that this generation for sure is caught between two realities. Mm. And what it, it's what I call a dual immersion effect, mm. where we're not just living one life, we're living two, one online and then one in real life. And I think that kids really struggle with the back and forth, um, socially, emotionally, mentally, mm-hmm. of what it is like to be living two realities at once. So, I mean, this is, I think, I think about this sometimes often, because you and I are on the internet a lot. We probably, someone would call us a therapy influencer, even though I'm sure we both don't love that word. (laughs) And we don't feel like we're influencing anyone maybe just to go to therapy, but, (laughs) which is good. But I was thinking the other day, because I was like, I feel like the way that I am on Instagram is fundamentally different from other people because I feel a lot of times because I follow so many therapists and because it's part of my work, I feel like I'm interacting with peers a lot of time or people that – or those are the people who I follow, right? I may interact with people who comment on my stuff. Obviously, there are people I follow who I don't know and I look up to and things like that. But I've been reading some articles lately about just how social media has changed and how if you think about it, a lot of us, it's not social. We're just like following these professional marketers and sellers and like entertainers essentially. And I think – 
when it's your line of work or you're in that, it's easy to forget that because, yeah. right, like I know you, we're, we're kind of like colleagues. Um, do you have any insight into that and what teens or adolescents experience when I, – I mean, I assume they interact with friends on DMs and stuff like that, but what is their perspective? I mean, I think we're seeing the erosion of social etiquette mm. in a way, I think because it sort of blurs this line, right, between home and work, right? Like when, I, when I'm posting online, when I'm showing up online, when I'm talking or commenting online, am I at home or am I at work? Mm. Is this my professional self? Is this my persona professionally? Or is this who I am personally, right? And so I think this creates a lot of unsocial behaviors, ones where we would never behave that way in life, but... For some reason, we're now behaving in real life and online, like we're living in a comment section. Like we're always having to find like this fiery, quippy, like talk back moment that needs to be a hot take, but very opinionated, but also very dysregulated and very unsocial. <laughs> it's concerning. It's so concerning. because I, I And I see it in the teens that I work with a lot is the context clues or a lot of the behavioral um, indicators in person aren't always translating and aren't always landing so there's a bit of like a rusty social skills meets like a emotional dysregulation over really minor things um i'm seeing just thresholds and windows of tolerances really changing that's so interesting that's such a good point and a way to a way to explain just what you were talking about with how you feel like people are being on the internet is kind of like being in middle school where we have these quick fuses people say really you know sometimes aggressive things yeah. to be funny, which is a very yeah. middle school thing. But yeah, we're adults or, you know, especially with the emotional regulation piece because social media does really dysregulate us. Fully. And actually a lot of um, psychologists have called uh, what these companies and what these apps do is basically what they're trying to do is hack into the bottom of our brainstem. Mm. And these companies competing with one another is a race to the bottom of the brainstem which is who can capture our attention, capture our emotion regulation, capture our stress management system, and therefore take our executive functioning offline and our social brain offline at the top of our brain. And so a lot of them are hacking from that very addictive nature, right? A lot of these social validation features uh, are used to exploit those primitive instincts within us that where we're fearful, like panicky, mm. a bit like unsure and skeptical. And I think that's why we're seeing a ton of rise in conspiracy theories and mm -hmm. a ton of like unbelievable and polarizing viewpoints yeah. um, and just a lot of really extreme behavior like you're kind of referencing, right? It It's a race to the bottom of our brainstem. Yeah, that's such a good way to put it. That makes so much sense because yeah, like the polarization is so intense and I feel like we used to just talk about polarization being a problem, you know, online, but I think it's becoming a problem in the world now and even down to to go back to your point about friendships, I think people have this almost perfectionistic idea of everyone in my life. I must 100% align with all of their, you know, beliefs tip to tail. And if not, I owe them nothing almost. And I don't want to be associated with them because it is so all or nothing. Ugh, on on my podcast this past week, we did a deep dive into AI therapists. So, mm, Oh my gosh, I need to listen. So my co-host and I, we uh, we signed up for this AI therapist um, thing and we kind of live, we're kind of going through this problem um, about making friends and how this AI therapist was reacting. 
And so I, I'm holding two things at the same time, which is that there are some really good responses and really deeply concerning responses. For example, like when I was talking about, I'm feeling sad and I might hurt myself, they immediately diagnosed it as depression, which I found so Ooh. fascinating. There was such a, a jump to this is what I think is happening for you. And again, it's all just information filtered into this bot that was called a therapist, right? The title was just AI therapist. And so it's like, hey, how are you? I'm your new therapist and I know I'm here to help you. Mm -hmm. So there's a weird like relational component, but it's also eerily robotic. Mm. Super strange, weird, weird future ahead of us. That is so interesting. I mean, I think I can't imagine it wouldn't. That's the problem, right? I think, I mean- Obviously, the people that love AI and love technology will probably say, well, it it will get better and, you know, that mm -hmm. won't. But what I think often as a therapist, I mean, one, you could say it's the relationship. And I often say, I don't, when people ask me, you know, do you think AI will replace therapists? I don't think it'll replace good therapists. But I also feel like AI isn't going to, right? Therapy is a relationship. So to me, until human beings feel comfortable <laughs> With having an actual relationship yeah. with AI, I don't think that will happen. But it's also like discretion is, right, like I would say the most important aspect of being a therapist. And it can't really be taught. You have to kind of practice to learn discretion right. and see lots of things to learn it. And I don't know how you ever teach AI that. I think AI – therapy bots, let's call them, are more similar to coaching than they are mm. therapy, right? Because yeah. it's very like quick solution focused. Here's what you should do. Here's what you should say. Or here's what's going on for you. And here's how you could solve it. Mm -hmm. It's very textbooky, right? It's very like psych 101 type stuff yeah. that I think that, you know, coaches and people who kind of give advice um, spend a lot of time, right? Focusing on, well, what are some solutions here? Right. What are some strategies you could try? <laughs> but you're right. It's, it's, not relational. And I, I also don't think, and I hope that it doesn't replace therapy because I worry about the world where robots and AI therapists become better than the real thing. Like what kind of world are we in where robot connection is better and more attractive than being in a relationship with a person? Yeah. So if everything Jake and I are saying is making you think about your own life and making you feel like maybe I could actually use some extra support, maybe I could use a therapist, or maybe my teen could use some support or my family could use some support, I would love to share with you about my practice, Therapy for Women Center. We're located in the Philadelphia area and on the main line, which is the suburbs right outside of Philly. We have therapists that specialize in working with teens. We obviously specialize in working with women. And we are so excited to announce that we actually now have therapists licensed in 42 states across the country. So if you've been listening and been frustrated that we can't serve you, I hope we're a lot closer to being able to fulfill that goal. And we have a therapist hopefully now who can support you. So check out therapyforwomencenter.com to learn more about us and we'd love to meet you. Yeah. You know, conflict, anything like that, that makes people so quick to, to kind of be like, I'm not going to stay in this discomfort. I will just leave. I will quit. I will end the relationship. I will set a really hard boundary. I just feel like we've also had this like overcorrect on the internet where again, like we were saying, it's like, if you don't perfectly align with me, I want nothing to do with you. Totally. Yeah. But that's not actually healthy because 
no one's perfect and no one is going to – we would have so few social connections. And we know it's actually good for our brains to be around people who obviously don't put yourself in a situation where you're unsafe. But it's good to be in different relationships and be exposed to different ideas. That's how your brain like expands and you learn and grow and get challenged. And that's sort of why algorithms um, are not healthy for our mental health, right? Is because they create what is called a bubble filter. They create a whole mini microcosm of your world and turn it into just things that you're interested in or viewpoints that you agree with, right? So it just becomes a bit of a, um, this is actually why the Netflix show is called Black Mirror, right? Is because It just creates this black mirror effect that you're just like staring into the abyss, but weirdly staring back at yourself and reflections of yourself Mm. where there is no difference. There's no opportunity to like see something from another point of view. And so of course your nervous Mm. system and brain are going to train around that, right? When everything is the same, but there's this weird expectation that what I'm also noticing in this generation is that they all want to be so different from each other. And I remember when I was young, I was like, if I'm seen as different or odd or weird, that is very bad. And so I want to try as much as possible to fit in. But I feel like being unique is the new, I have to be socially different. Super weird. Yeah. Yeah. No, I've thought about that too. Because I don't know if you have any theories of of why that is besides it's just popular or it's social media influencing people that they need to have their own unique brand or do you have any ideas? Yeah, I think the social validation features that are built into these apps with things like likes, comments, follower Mm -hmm. accounts, they all sort of feed into a renorming, I think, of what we need to do in order to get validation or to get connection or to get belonging in order to feel loved. Um, And I think that unfortunately, social media trains a narcissistic level of social validation that I don't think is healthy, right? It, it causes yeah. us to pursue like more is better and like comments mm-hmm. and likes and follower accounts, I think just really instruct a different unfortunate pattern of relating that I don't think is healthy. Totally. That makes so much sense. So when you look at, cause I don't have, I don't have a child who's a teen or an adolescent. When you look at teens and adolescents right now, Another thing that I think is interesting because I think this leads to the conversation of, right, if any parents are listening, what do I do about this? And obviously, I don't think we have – this is a very complicated problem. Um, But I think what's also hard and as I thought about when my child gets older, do you restrict? Do you limit? What do you do? And I think what's so hard too is I've had friends say, you know, we didn't let my child have a cell phone for a long time and then – They've, they're left out of things because there's this whole social world happening and they don't have access. They're not being invited to playdates or things like that because they're not online and there's this whole world happening. You were saying like second life and they're not a, a part of that. Are you seeing that as well? Oh, for sure. And I think that if we back up a second, like with the reason I think why a lot of parents feel this sense of like I have to pull screens away or limit screen use in general is because we're worried about kind of the mental health or attentional and and focus implications of doing that, right? And I think what this point raises is, which is a common one among kids and parents, which is that there are also social implications to not being online. And so it becomes a question of, am I pulling the phone away to reduce the impact Mm -hmm. of mental health? Or am I also pulling the phone away and therefore unintentionally creating social health implications that are not going to be good for them either? And I think that, um, so this is referred to as a collective action problem, right? Where no one can actually make a change because we're all doing the same thing. And so ideally, 
we would have phones out of middle school. I think that that is what all the research and all of the guidance from health authorities would suggest is healthiest for kids is to not have social mm-hmm. validation features and apps in mm-hmm. middle school just because it takes the social brain and turns it yeah. into a dumpster fire, right? We just see so many ramifications of doing so. But yeah, every single day I have that question. What age should I give my kid mm-hmm. a, a smartphone? And how much screen time should I yeah. let my kid have? God, it's so hard. It's so hard. The approach that I sort of take around screen use is I like to think about screen use as pro-social and active and then inactive and antisocial. Hmm. I think that there are positive pro-social active ways to use social media and screens that that can be really healthy for kids. Mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of boys that I work with are gaming online. They're connecting with friends. They're, you know, training um, their social skills just in a different setting, right? Mm-hmm. It may not be in the classroom or at recess, but it's, you know, in their own living room talking about Fortnite and talking about like, hey, let's all team up and get together on this, right? Mm-hmm. So that is all still really positive development. But when we really hard and fast rule, limit screen time and pull it away or say, you know, you can only be on it for one hour, yeah, that creates a whole new uh, impact on kids' lives. And so I, I take um, a both-and approach, which is that I think kids need to be online because that's where their social lives are. But I also think that anytime you're letting kids passively scroll and getting letting an algorithm determine their use, then that's where it becomes unhealthy. Mm. So I would say limit passive scrolling where Mm. possible and limit passive use as much as possible. That's a really good idea. That makes a lot of sense based on what you said. Just to give an example, I'm much less concerned about the kid who's using four hours on games and Snapchat Mm -hmm. than I am about the kid who's using two hours to just do really antisocial stuff online, right? Yeah. And when you're saying antisocial stuff, are you talking about Bullying, aggression, fighting over Snapchat, um, posting pictures and, you know, using like alt accounts to like bully people, um, passively scrolling, like kind of falling into like algorithm holes for hours upon hours, solo gaming, addictive solo gaming by yourself is sort of where I would say is the more antisocial passive use. Got it. Yeah. Got it. That's very helpful. Yeah. I don't have a teen or I didn't even think about I think what I'm sitting with right now is I'm like some of the people that troll me may be teens <laughs> uh, on Instagram. They, they likely are. <laughs> fully, fully, fully. Oh my God. It's so funny because I just, yeah, I, I don't think about that sometimes. Because a lot of accounts are faceless and right. ageless, right? No. Yeah, I would love to see a social media environment where we have one person, one account. Mm. I think that there's a lot of people who are doing some really messed up bullyish type stuff just by just for the sake of it right and sometimes this is also kids like in middle school we do we practice fucking up right mm-hmm. we practice getting it wrong we practice blurting something out and being like whoops i should have said that shouldn't have did that mm-hmm. that's all part of healthy development but online it's there are also no adults right, right. so there's no one monitoring there's no social modulators of behavior that can give us that social feedback all the feedback is dopamine it's exciting. It's, oh, I, I'm going to kind of like give a spicy comment and see what happens here. Yeah. There's little social feedback that is teachable. Mm. Yeah, that's such a good point about just how kids learn and grow from, yeah, saying the wrong thing, apologizing, you know, seeing that they said something that upset someone and then like dealing with the repercussions of that compared to, yeah, the the meanest person online with the wittiest comment and comeback wins often. Can you tell that I talk about this every day with teenagers? <laughs> I'm just like 
I'm just so in it, Amanda. Mm-hmm. I'm like baked into the fabric of like social media and teenagers and all that kind of stuff. Like, for example, I've actually had to put kids on um, social media diets where I'm like, listen, no fighting over Snapchat. That's the rule. I think it's amazing that they tell you this. Like, that's what I think is really fascinating is I feel like I knew about bullying, but I but often when you know about bullying, it doesn't mean that you know someone who admits to being a bully. So I think, is it their parents that tell you or they will just be honest about it? It could be both, but also the funny like social awareness piece too of a teenager sitting across from you being like, okay, let me read you what happened. And then as they're reading it through, I'm kind of like, I think you're the bully here. I think you're like encouraging the types of behaviors that you're trying to avoid. And so I think there's a lot of evidence that gets put on the table um, that I mm-hmm. just, yeah, luckily get to kind of have access to. And there are um, many kids who I ask to see their screen time um, in their phone, ask to look at like what apps to use the most, getting a sense of like, yeah. what is your life online like? Because as I was saying before, if we don't ask those questions with with teens, then we're only getting access to half of their life, only 50% mm. of it. That is such a good point. Um, like, do you call yourself a, a specialist in this, or do you also just think that every therapist that's working with adolescents needs to be like monitoring screen time and having these conversations? I, I don't see how we could be doing competent psychotherapy yeah. if we're not asking those questions in this population. And I think mm. with parents and with teens across the board, it is these are topics that are coming up time and time again to the point where about a year ago, we redid our assessment process at our clinic. And now we have Mm -hmm. a complete deep dive on technology and screen use and social media and tech, all that kind of stuff. Because in the modern family, that's a part of family life. And so, yeah, we assess for it at, at the very beginning entry point of our clinic so that we have all the information that we need in order to feel like we're doing good, good work. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's so important. Totally. And I would even zoom it out from teenagers, right? Like I think I've seen a lot of adults in comment sections. Mm-hmm. I've seen a lot of adults like posting on social media in a way that yeah. I don't know that that's how they would show up in real life. And I'm I'm drawn to that. I'm really interested mm-hmm. in like psychologically what internets and algorithms do to our well-being and to our brain and to how we relate to each other. And so I would say that mm-hmm. a lot of my work is, yeah, focused on technology as it overlaps with well-being. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's really hard too because, right, I obviously come from the addiction perspective and I think it's so hard because some people classify it as a process addiction or things like that, but it's not something you can just stop doing anymore. You know, like I think you could delete social media and stuff like that depending on what your job is, but you can't just not have a phone. You I mean, you you told me at the beginning of the podcast you just took a 6-month break off of Instagram. There are parts of the internet, I think that's what's hard that can make our lives better or can allow us to feel more connected to people. I think my biggest beef with it is it just is so extreme. It's like everything is better and worse on the internet. And and I think that's the crux of the problem (laughs) is like the highs are higher and the lows are lower, which is not good for our brains. What a great way to say it. And I think that comes back to that dopamine piece. I noticed something interesting around the 2010s, around like 2011, Mm. 2012. And so I did a bit of a deeper dive into sort of what was going on around that time. And that was actually the time when 
the mental health of Gen Z really skyrocketed. We are seeing mm. we are seeing an increase um, in mental health issues among the population um, for a while, but around the 2012 mark is when it just like took off. And so I was trying to figure out like what is this? Like why is this happening? And around that time from 2010 to 2012 is when the iPhone 4 became the iPhone mm. 5. And the mm. major difference there is that the iPhone 4 uh, didn't have a front-facing camera. The iPhone 5 <gasps> with the front-facing camera enabled the development of these photo-sharing apps, right? Like Snapchat, Instagram, and these new ways of connecting on social media, not just Facebook, like newsfeed, but with mm. images and comparisons and other socially invalidating forms of connection, right? And so mm -hmm. I noticed that and I was like, okay, this is fascinating. And then around 2016 to 2018 is when Instagram stories and Snap stories started coming on. And there's other modes, other ways that like these screens have just really eroded our attention. And now we're in a, another uh, blip in that radar, which is where the algorithms like TikTok and Instagram have just really captured and eroded our attention. So I don't think we should be so shocked. Like there's a story here and we know mm -hmm. what, what happened. Yeah, the genie is out of the, the bottle though. I don't, know how we, I don't know how we put it back. Just so scary. The toothpaste is out of the tube, right? And I yeah. I personally, I was really startled. Um, the reason why I took a social media break, I was mm -hmm. in my clinic last um, spring and I had a family in and they were presenting, you know, with some very generic concerns but the thing that I couldn't get out of my brain was something that happened in the waiting room. The mom is sitting there opening a magazine because she's waiting and reading. And as I was dropping off the kid that I was working with, she had her toddler with her. And the toddler was scrolling on the magazine as if it was a picture. <gasps> she was trying to make the magazine move. Mm. And it was a moment where I thought to myself, oh my gosh, this kid is two years old and has never held a smartphone in her hands, in her life. And she has watched all the other people around her in the first two years of life do that same behavior. And I had this moment of, there's something wrong here and I don't know what, but I need to take a closer look at this for myself. So mm. using my own brain and body as a laboratory, I was like, I need to take some time away to figure this out. And How was your break? You know what? I I think there's a lot of pressure to sort of tell this story that like, you know, being, yeah. having this break, it, it made me a better person. I think it has allowed me to see the problem really clearly. But now that I'm back and now that I'm in it and now that it's a big part of my work, I'm, I am more mindful about how it impacts us. And I think that I've seen kids go in and out of this problem for many mm -hmm. years now. And so I, um, yeah, it, it has really changed my relationship with technology, but I don't think that we can escape it responsibly. I don't think that we can uh, get away from it. Yeah. Yeah, the the biggest break I ever took, which it wasn't, I don't know if it was a full break, but I was extremely sick when I was pregnant. And um, I had something that I just had an extreme level of morning sickness that made it so that I was just, I was nauseous when I looked at a screen, like I couldn't watch TV. It was very strange. So I couldn't really be on Instagram or scroll or anything like that. And I think the best thing I learned is I realized how hypervigilant I was yeah. and how much I like obsessively checked comments and was constantly worried about someone saying something. You know, I think as a therapist, one of the hardest things is when people say you're causing harm, like yes. that is my oh. biggest button that anyone, it is just so obviously easy to push. And 
I used to really, I think, comb through and read all my comments and make sure if anyone accused me of doing harm, I like followed up with them and I had a conversation with them or I retracted it or I clarified like this huge need also to be understood. It Right? It's like that tolerance of learning that you can be misunderstood, judged, called whatever thing. And if we're constantly trying to prevent that from happening, we don't have faith that we'll like survive it when it happens. Oh, wow. That is highly, highly relatable to me. I I totally see that um, in myself. And now let's map on what that experience is like for an adolescent, right? Who yeah. doesn't have the adult yeah. skills to regulate that experience or to even give perspective for themselves, right? And mm-hmm. I think a lot of them are behaving out of fear. A lot of them are behaving out of anticipated shame and mm. judgment that could come their way. And so I think a lot of young people operate with this like prepackaged level of scrutiny that has already happened or taken place, but mm-hmm. is not substantiated in real life. There's no actual harm, let's say, that they've committed, right. but they're behaving right. as if like they're always about to make a mistake and harm someone and fail and get it wrong and mm-hmm. be publicly recognizable um, mm-hmm. for their wrongdoing. Yeah, well, I imagine too. I mean, I even not even that many bad things have happened to me on the internet, but it's more like I've seen things. <laughs> right. Yes. And not so enough I, is, is like yeah. enough. <laughs> right. So I think that makes a lot of sense because I'm sure they end up on people's comment section seeing what other people say, seeing right which comment has the most likes on it. This is the one that won the comment section. And yeah, I could very easily see how you would just internalize that and be worried about making a mistake, saying something wrong. Totally. Here's a bit of a glimmer of hope. I Yeah. I, Please leave us with some hope. <laughs> with um with um with one of uh, the not one of many of the grade 12 students that I'm working with, I I feel as though a lot of people in the 12th grade closer to adulthood. So I think that they want solutions um, around these sorts of things as they as they notice like mental health impacts. I'm working with this one girl right now and she uh, has given permission for me to talk about it publicly because it's one of those things that she's so proud of. And mm. I obviously won't give any identifying details, but she um, I put her on a plan that to take 30 days away from Snapchat and Instagram mm-hmm. and TikTok and just see how she felt. Yes. And 30 days away, so 30 days of abstinence away from screens and apps, completely resetted her own dopamine system. And she went back and she no longer has the same drive to go back there in the way that she did before. And I don't know what happened. I certainly will not claim that it was me that did it, um, but yeah. she had done some really important work. And so she found this this thing for herself that she just needed to reset her dopamine pathways. And now that she's back, she's like, I don't have the same drive to be there. And so she took 30 days off and doesn't want to be back in the same way that she was before. And seeing her go through that, that actually sort of inspired me to take my break as well. And Mm -hmm. as I was away, I was like, this is kind of nice. I kind of like not being under public scrutiny for every little period and comma on my page. Mm -hmm. It's kind of lovely. So yeah, well, I feel like When you're under public scrutiny too, you almost have like a split where you are living your life, but even if you're not, you know, photographing or videoing yourself, right? Like there's this part of you, right, that is like self-monitoring. Yes. Um, And that's right. Like that's a huge issue in like body image and, and all of these things where if we're like constantly monitoring how we look, we obviously 
are going to really struggle to be present in life and do these social things like we talked about that enrich your life. So I I wonder, I bet there's a connection also between that self-monitoring, self-judging that happens because these teens have grown up watching other people monitor themselves or they're monitoring other people. It's so fascinating to think about. Especially as it maps on to what you're saying before about the hypervigilance piece, right? Of course, there is like a more hypervigilant self-focus that comes out of watching people go through really hard things. And mm-hmm. even just like watching, you know, various types of content, regardless of, you know, if it's social or not, I think that we we see just like really hard things all the time. And what happens when you're looking at all this play out on social media, but then you look in your real life and it's either not occurring or not as intense as you saw it um, in the movie of, of it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? It's super challenging and super hard for us to decipher like what is real and mm-hmm. what am I imagining? What am I mm. feeling? What am I overthinking mm-hmm. um, in real life? Yeah, I think too about how when I was young and I was in therapy, one of the things that my therapist told me to do would be, right, if I was very afraid of something happening, right, it was kind of that very cognitive behavioral therapy model of like you go try to do things and you gather evidence and stuff. And I would imagine it must be much harder to do that because if someone does say something wrong on the internet, or even I'm thinking of how we say things like, you're personalizing things. You're making things about you that aren't about you. You're overly, you know, thinking people think about you when they're not. But when you are on social media, you are continuously seeing evidence that people are watching you and are judging you and do have the opinions about you. Totally. And at the same time, not knowing who exactly those people are, right? Like who yeah. saw this and who knows about this and who saw this post I made, who who saw mm. the comment fight that was happening on my page, all those layers, right, of social indicators where we try to gather proof and evidence. Makes you feel a bit like tingly inside. It's a bit, yeah. a bit creepy, right? Well, this conversation has been amazing and mind-blowing, Jake. I feel like I've learned so much. I know you talked a little bit about right, ways that we can mindfully change our habits, maybe taking a 30-day break or, you know, I think the tip was really great with parents about not having them mindlessly scroll and the antisocial stuff. Is there there any other tips or things you wanted to tell us whether someone is wanting to cut back on their own time online or they're a parent? I have a personal theory that I think that social media litigation will be the new tobacco litigation. I God, think I that so. I think that we're going to see some really big changes happening online, um, given that you know it has been revealed that these things do there is data that these things do cause harm, and so I think any opportunity for us to be in person and to be connecting again, um, even if that's in a work context and over Zoom, like if you have the choice to like talk to someone over FaceTime or be in person, be in person. Try to mm-hmm. really flex the social muscles of being in person. And a way that I do that is I think it's important to introduce a third space. Over the pandemic, mm-hmm. we had an erosion of third spaces where um, the first and second space that we usually congregate is home or school slash work. And when we add a third space into that, our social life becomes a lot bigger and a lot richer. And so mm-hmm. trying to find third spaces in our lives, so things like public parks and going for walks and bars and Um, Either that's drinking or not drinking, right? Just social environments, places where people gather, um, coffee shops, libraries, 
um, movie theaters. I think we want to try to introduce those as much as possible um, as a way of not just not being online, but instead inserting something else in its place. So I think that's a really big one Mm -hmm. that I would recommend. I see so many clients of mine say, but I need it, but I need to be there, Mm -hmm. but I have to be there. Mm -hmm. And so I usually say, okay, if you need to be there, you can do that and Mm -hmm. also add something else. I just think it really enriches our social experience when we have diversity in what we do. So where it's not just like, you know, coming home to scroll on the couch, but rather like I'm going to go on, go for a walk. If I'm going to scroll on the couch, then I'm also going to go for a walk. Love that. Such a good point. Um, Jake, where can people find you, learn more about you, all of that? Uh, on a weekly basis, I talk on my own podcast about all this kind of stuff. It's called This Isn't Therapy. I do it with my best friend. It's very like fun. It's very silly. It's called This Isn't Therapy for a reason because we're not trying to make it so like serious and like like heavy. Um, so yeah. I, uh, people can find me at my podcast and also online at MSW Jake. Amazing. Amazing. Well, thank you so much, Jake. We'll have to have you back because I feel like there's four different conversations um, (laughs) that we could have in regards to this topic. Lots to talk about. There's always lots to discuss. (laughs) Love it. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. To suggest an episode topic or support my work, visit amandaewhite.com. If you're interested in getting therapy from my practice, visit therapyforwomencenter.com. We're based in Philadelphia, but we have therapists serving 27 states across the country. 